Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. This morning we are continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah. And I told you last week, like, hey, um, so I thought it was going to be a two-part study, but it's actually going to be three. I'm going to revise that one more time and say that our two-part study has now become a four-part study. So three, part three today of a four-part study in Nehemiah chapter two that I've titled Stirred for the Work, Stirred for the Work. Our main text is going to be Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But for context, let's actually just start reading in verse 1 of chapter 2, and we're going to read through verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, verse 5, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Therefore I said to the king, if it pleases the king, Let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then, verse 9, I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent captains, uh, captains, not captives, captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. I want to remind us, especially as we get into these sections where it's so heavily focused on the building project, on all of the gates and the wall and all the things that are happening, that we keep in mind the context of Nehemiah's situation in our minds. 92 years have passed since the first group of exiles had returned to Jerusalem under the command of King Cyrus the Persian to go back and rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And though the people were still there in Jerusalem, we found that things were not going well. They're in great distress and reproach. 
The temple in Jerusalem had been rebuilt, had been in place for about 72 years at this point. They had been preserved and protected by God from extermination about 30 years prior to this because of how God used Esther and Mordecai, her uncle. Ezra the priest had led another group of exiles back to the land about 12 to 13 years before this and was used by God to bring about some great reforms to where the people separated themselves from ungodly relationships that they had struck up with the people of the land in that area of Judah, and yet still we find that the people were not flourishing spiritually or physically or as a community. They were in great distress and reproach. The walls and gates of the city still lay in ruin. And to help remind us of the significance of the state of the people, which was connected to the state of the city, with the walls being broken down and the gates destroyed by fire, I want to show you a couple quotes I showed in one of our intro studies. First, check out what David Gutzik said about the state of the people and the city of Jerusalem. He said, The bad state of the people and the bad state of the city walls were intimately connected. In the ancient world, a city without walls was a city completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. They had no defense, no protection at all. An unwalled city was always vulnerable, unable to safely house people and valuables. If there were anything of value in an unwalled city, it could be stolen away easily because there was no defense to stop it. Those living in an unwalled city lived in constant stress and tension. They never knew when they might be attacked and brutalized. Every man lived in constant fear for his wife and children. The temple could be rebuilt, but never made beautiful because anything valuable would be taken easily. No wonder the people lived in constant distress and in constant disgrace or reproach, living only as survivors. He went on to say, God has more for us than to be mere survivors. God not only wants us to be conquerors, but more than conquerors, through him who loved us, and he references Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Those are important things for us to keep in our minds that help reveal that the physical and emotional impact of the walls and gates being in ruin, but there was even more to it than that. Uh, Check out what Alan Redpath also said about this. He said, Jerusalem's walls were in ruins and its gates were burned. To a modern city, of course, that means nothing. But God's purpose for Jerusalem was that its walls should be salvation, and its gates should be praise. And the emblems of salvation and praise lay in utter ruin. He says, is God calling some of us to weep and mourn over the ruin of these emblems in our lives? The symbol of salvation, the symbol of praise, The wall that marks our separation from the world, he asks, does it lie in tragic ruin? The impact of the walls and gates being in ruin were not just physical and emotional. The impact was also spiritual. As Alan Redpath points out, those emblems of salvation and praise being in ruin meant that the witness 
that God desired his people to be to every other nation and people in the world was also in ruin. That the state of the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem were lacking those emblems, those symbols, that if they were in place, would lead others to want to find salvation in the God of Israel and want to give praise to the God of Israel. See, there was a work of rebuilding and renewal and revival that God wanted to bring about in Nehemiah's day and with Nehemiah's people and in the city of Jerusalem, not leaving the people in a state of distress and reproach and brokenness and weakness and vulnerability, but drawing them out of those things and doing something in those things that only he could do. And and he was going to use Nehemiah to help bring all of that about. As we considered in our study last week, Nehemiah has now been granted permission by King Artaxerxes Longamanus to go to Jerusalem to rebuild. He's been appointed as governor of Judah by the king. He's been given letters from the king for the journey and also for the provision that was needed for the building projects, and he was even given a military escort for the journey from Shushan to Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah went out, as we considered at the end of our study last week, because he was sent out. Sent out ultimately by God, but the Lord using King Artaxerxes in his plan to send Nehemiah to Jerusalem. And already we've seen the first bit of opposition to God's desire to rebuild and renew and revive his people as two men, Sanballat and Tobiah, were deeply disturbed that someone had come seeking the well-being of the Israelites. And so with all of that context in mind, let's now read verses 11 and 12. We're told in verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem, was there three days, then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. A lot is contained in that brief description. Description. It's a scripture with a description, so it's like a description. No? Anyone? Anyways. Heard it here first. Brief description in verse 11. You know, most of our travels these days, we live in a pretty amazing time in history, don't we? Most of our travels these days, especially with being able to travel by plane, is measured in hours, isn't it? When you talk about going somewhere, you're like, how many hours is it going to take me to get there? I mean, if you're going on a really gnarly trip and you're like, hey, I'm going... Gnarly not being the destination, but the, the amount of travel. You might travel upwards of 17 hours even at one time in a plane if you're going somewhere like India. Like, man, I just... And, and if you've ever been in a long flight, you're like ready to be done after five hours. You're like, I need to stand up. I'm getting blood clots in my legs. This thing's not good. It's not going well. I need to do some lunges in the aisle way. I don't even know if they let you do that anymore. 
But even with driving, we could get from here to the northeast coast of the United States in about 50 hours, two days straight of driving. Pretty crazy. So when we read about travels in the Bible, we can miss some of the the seriousness or what that really meant, the, the statement like verse 11, along with Nehemiah already saying in verse 9 that he had come to the governors in the region beyond the river, the river Euphrates. We have to remember that much of the travel in that day happened by foot, maybe by camel, maybe even possibly by donkey or horse. And so Nehemiah had been in Shushan and and had to travel from Shushan to Jerusalem. We have a map image to show you so you have a better idea of what was going on geographically. So if you see over here to the left, Mount, the Mount of Olives, that's Jerusalem. Far over to the right, just east, is Susa. Susa was Shushan. This is 800 plus miles of travel. In fact, I, I read in one, of the, in one commentary about Ezra's journey. He traveled from Babylon to Jerusalem 13 years prior that because of the route that Ezra and the, the, the group of exiles that returned with him, the route that they would have had to take, it was upwards of like 900 miles, even though it's closer distance than Susa. And it took him over four months to get that distance from Babylon to Jerusalem. So we don't know exactly how long it took Nehemiah and this military escort to get from Susa, Shushan, all the way to Jerusalem, but some speculate that it was upwards of five months of travel. And it isn't interesting, he's like, then I came to Jerusalem. I'd be like, man, let me tell you about the trip. That was a trip, all right. I'm tired. My butt hurts. My feet hurt. Traveling through deserts. And mountains. And it stinks. Like, I'd be complaining. It'd be like, verse 11 would be a much longer verse if I was writing this. It'd be like, a couple pages later, verse 11. It's still verse 11. With no periods. It's just like a long run on. <laughs> just me? Oh, man. <laughs> so, Babylon, that's modern-day Iraq. Okay. Susa, Shushan, that's modern-day Iran, Iran, depending on how you pronounce it, right? The Persian Empire, Persia is Iran, Iran. Nehemiah is having to travel 800-plus miles to get Jerusalem. We don't know what kind of an animal he traveled on. We do know he was on an animal. But this was a long journey for Nehemiah. And for me, as I consider that, that just reinforces to me, to us, that Nehemiah was committed to God's call upon his life. No matter what kind of sacrifices or inconveniences or discomfort that that would mean for himself personally and taking leave of his job in the capital of the Persian Empire, serving the king, to head to the broken down city and the broken down people of Jerusalem. You know, it's one thing to like have an idea about something. Man, that sounds really great. This mission venture. 
But then you're like, the, the actual reality of what you're stepping into, how many people never actually step into it because the reality hits them before they move? If you're going, hey, I've got five months of traveling, you might go, God, do you got somebody a little closer? Is there somebody actually in Jerusalem already you might be able to like stir up for this? I'm kind of removed a little bit from this. I didn't grow up there. I don't really know these people at all personally. You have some, you know, we've been reading in Exodus and we read Moses' interaction with God when God's first calling Moses to be the deliverer for his people. He's like, God, can you send someone else? He actually says that. God, can you just send somebody else? And how many of us have been in a similar thing? And God's going like, it's not 800 miles, it's eight feet. Somebody in your house. It's 80 feet, it's the person across the street, it's your next door neighbor. And God's like, hey, I want you to go love on them, I want you to serve them, I want you to show Jesus to them, I want you to tell them about me. And we're like, God, do you have anybody else? Do you have somebody a little closer? The, the problem is that proximity doesn't solve that a step of faith is needed. It could be 800 feet or it could be 8 feet. It still requires faith and obedience and an openness to say, God, whatever you want to do with my life, you got me. And I love Nehemiah's example here. It challenges us, doesn't it? Because it's a lot easier to stay in our comfort. And when we see brokenness, when we see a mess, our, our immediate thing is not to go, yeah, I want to go step into that. I want to have to interact within that mess. It's a lot easier to just look from the mess from afar and be like, oh God, do something there. And God's going like, I want to send you into that thing. Nehemiah was committed. But the Lord clearly got Nehemiah there safely. He was in Jerusalem for three days. And the, the speculation about the three days is that Nehemiah likely needed those three days to rest after the journey, but also to pray and further plan how the rebuilding was actually going to happen. Because clearly, as we'll see in chapter 3, Three, Nehemiah had a plan, knew how to organize and direct the work on the wall and the gates with all the people being divided up into groups. But, but after being there three days, we're told in verse 12 that he got up in the night, he brought a few guys with him that he trusted, obviously. He told nobody what his God had put in his heart to do at Jerusalem. The only animal with him was the one he rode on, and an important insight is given to us in verse 12, which I've mentioned in a previous study, but Nehemiah had come to Jerusalem with the goal of rebuilding because God was the one who had put those things, those desires, those plans in Nehemiah's heart in the first place. Nehemiah is not taking credit for the thing he's now participating in. He's not going, I just had this really great idea. I just thought it'd be really, really great. 
to come. He's like, that wasn't even me. God, God did this. God moved in my heart. God gave me that burden. God gave me that plan. He gave me that clarity. He gave me that sort of confidence in him that I could step into these things. God did that. And God put those things in his heart during those four months where he was fervently praying and waiting upon the Lord regarding the situation that he had heard about in Jerusalem. And I just think about us, that the things that God has put on our hearts. The thing that God has yet to put on our hearts. You know the rad thing about us all being different people, and yet there's still being unity? Remember, we have... We don't have uniformity. We have unity. We're not all the same. We don't all have the same burden for all the same things. We should have the same burden for very specific things when it comes to the souls of individuals being saved. We should have the same burden for that. But individual ministry, individual situations, things that are going on, a ministry to be a part of, God shows us things and he'll burden us for those things. He'll put things on our heart that he may not put on someone else's heart and that's okay. But whatever he's put on our hearts, we have a responsibility to respond to, don't we? And that doesn't mean we just, as soon as that thing's in our hearts, I just run out. Okay, Lord. And we're just looking around. I don't know what's happening, but like I had this thing in my heart. No, we get the thing on our heart. God starts to stir our hearts and we pray. We pray and we pray and we pray and we commit the thing to the Lord. We ask God, God, put your desires in my heart. Put your plans in my heart. God, move me in the way that you want me to be moved. If this is not from you, I don't want to be a part of it. But if your spirit is in it, if you're leading me, then God, I want to be a part of it. And and he's able in that time of prayer, as he's made something clear to us, to then have our full attention, doesn't he? To where we can go, cool, Lord. I've got greater clarity than I had last week. Last month, last year. And, and as he makes things clear, we step in with the confidence that he gives us. But, but I think more and more in our day, we need to be asking God, God, put your desires in our hearts. Lord, whatever you want for my life, whatever you're wanting to do, God, do it. Put it in my heart. Because sometimes the things in our hearts, they're just us. It's just me. That's my thing. And God might be going, I want to do something different. God had put these things on Nehemiah's heart. And as he prayed, God gave him direction, gave him vision, gave him a passion. But for the few, first few days he was there, he didn't tell anyone what his God had put in his heart to do there in Jerusalem, but we do see the actions he started to take in verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, and I went out by night 
through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate. You're like, what kind of city was this? Serpent well. Don't draw water from that one. Get bit. That's just a name. Just a name, everyone. Refuse gate. We're like, oh gosh. That gate really stunk. But I'm tink. It says, and he viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down in its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. Verse 15, so I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. So Nehemiah sort of makes a circuit, starting at a certain point, travels around the city, sees what's going on, returns to the same starting point. The valley very possibly referring to the Kidron Valley, which was on the eastern side of the temple. But between verses 13 through 20, between our study today and next, I I believe we see three different aspects of stirring that God did in Nehemiah. We've seen a lot of stirring that God's done. But specifically here in these verses, three different aspects of stirring that God did in Nehemiah. First, that God stirred him to see, which we're going to consider in our study this morning. And then next week, we'll consider the other two aspects, which, will, which is going to be that God stirred him to speak. And then thirdly, that God has stirred him to stand. But, but first, and I believe we see this in verses 13 through 17, God, again, stirred Nehemiah to see. In verse 13, we're told that he viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates were, which were burned with fire. And then in verse 15, that he viewed the wall in different areas as he traveled around the city with its broken down walls and gates. One of the gates, one of the areas he went to were, was so badly in ruins that his animal couldn't even get through it. But that word viewed in both verse 13 and verse 15 means to inspect or examine, to look over carefully. See, Nehemiah had already heard the report months earlier from his brother and others who had witnessed firsthand the distress and reproach, the broken down walls and the the ash heaps uh, heaps that used to be gates. But Nehemiah had to see those things up close for himself. You know, it's a lot easier to hear or know about damage, to know about a gap that exists from afar, but stay distanced from the damage, stay distanced from the brokenness. And it's a lot harder to see up close and step into the gap, to step into the damage and brokenness that God has revealed to us. And yet Nehemiah wasn't content with just hearing about the state of the walls and gates or hearing about the distress and reproach, but he wanted to see and experience it for himself as God was solidifying both the burden for his people and also the plan to do something. But, but what about us? Has, has God stirred us 
to go beyond hearing about something or knowing intellectually about something to what to, to want to really truly see the things he's seeing have we been stirred to see the state of our lives the lives of others to see situations and places to really see the way things actually are and take a walk in those things, so to speak, instead of staying distanced and detached to where we just don't care enough to be moved by God to act. Are, are there areas maybe where the work of God, just like the wall had been, the work of the wall had been halted, because they tried early on to start building the walls when they were building the temple, but that work had halted for over 90 years. And are there areas maybe where the work of God is halted in our lives because of complacency or compromise or because we've just plain ignored areas the Lord has been pointing out to us that He wants to work in, but we just haven't let Him you know, maybe we're so immersed in and, and settled into things that have just been how they are for a long time. And we no longer see the brokenness, see the weakness, see the sin, whatever that thing might be, clearly like we should. You know, if any of those things I just shared about for us to consider are true for us, we need God to wake us up. We need God to open our eyes, to help us see things in a fresh way, to see things for how they really are, not how we've been seeing them and maybe ignoring or making excuses for them, but how God sees those things in reality. And then we need Him to revive us. We need, to, we need Him to reignite hope in us so that those things can finally change if God is allowed to have His way in every part of our lives. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but maybe this is true for you, that things have been a certain way in your life, and, and initially you saw like, oh my gosh, like, God, that's not what you have for me. That thing doesn't belong. You want to bring this change, but then nothing happens. And, and instead of seeing that thing with the soberness that you should over time, your, your sense of seeing dulls. And, and that settling in just happens. It happened with the Israelites here. How do you get to a point where 90 years goes by and you're just like, well, just plug it along. We've got our temple, though. We do have our temple. But the worship life of the people even was affected by the walls not being there. They weren't coming and coming with boldness and coming with this sense of surrender to the Lord. They're like looking over their shoulders all the time. They're not feeling safe. 
They're not feeling like they're in this place where I can just really worship the Lord and, and, and have this sort of peace of the Lord to draw near. They're like, man, we're a vulnerable people and any enemy could come in at any time and just take us down. We got to get past the point of just, well, we've got the temple. I'm saved. I love the Lord. I worship the Lord. But if the walls of your spiritual life are broken down and the gates are an ash heap, there's more that God has for you and for me. We shouldn't just be content with the, with the ashes being there. And the wall being in, in, in a destroyed state. We should be moved by those things in our lives. We shouldn't just be sort of like unfazed, like, well, it just is what it is. We need God to help us see things. Have you ever been blinded to something in your life and someone else, this is great, when you're in a godly marriage and your spouse is like able to point like, hey, you're, maybe you're blind to something. You don't even realize a, a pattern or a, a behavior, something that you say and, and, it's, it's, and, and your spouse is able to go, hey, you know what? I don't think that, you know, I think the Lord would have something different there. You know, I don't think that's the right way to respond. I, and I could be completely blinded to that. Oh man, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even see that that was, uh, that was a problem or that could, that could be something that could, you know, affect somebody else. But what about those things in our lives that we just, we've got blind spots to? God, help us to see. And not just see, but when we see them, to bring them to the Lord in prayer. Because if we just see the things and that's all that happens, we just see it. Oh man, you could just be a wreck. If God just showed us all the different things in our hearts in a moment, all the different things, all the things that we just are blinded to that aren't of Him, that aren't from Him, that don't please Him, it could make us a mess. And if we just sat in that thing and we're just there and we're just seeing, I just see, Lord, I see it. Like I'm just a, I, Lord, I'm a failure. I'm a failure. It's like it, it has to go beyond just seeing. We see it. So that we can bring it to the Lord and go, Lord, do something here. Please. God, I repent of these things in my life. I don't want that to be in my life. Confess those things to the Lord. Let him bring forgiveness. Let him bring healing. Let him bring growth. But it's got to start with us seeing. Because if we're not seeing, we're just going to keep going the way that we've been going. And God might be going, hey, like, but there's things in your life that are actually damaging your fellowship with me, your effectiveness for me, your witness for Christ. Nehemiah had to see the damaged walls and gates, had to walk through the ruins of the city himself before he was willing to say anything to the people of Jerusalem about why he had come. I believe in the stirring God is wanting to do with us. The first aspect of how he's wanting to stir us begins with him wanting us to have eyes to see. To really see what he's seeing and, and to let what he's seeing 
and what he's broken by break us and burden us and drive us to really seek him because without us being stirred to see, we never, we'll never be stirred to speak or to stand or to put our hands to the work that God is wanting us to be involved in for his kingdom and glory. But, but look at verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Nehemiah surveying the damage at night and him not telling the people where he had gone or what he had done was an intentional move on Nehemiah's part. This was not just for the protection of the Jewish people, protecting them from discouragement or strife or division if people kind of heard little by little and then came to their own conclusions about why Nehemiah had come or what he was doing. It was also to protect from the enemy knowing what Nehemiah was doing before he had an opportunity to address the people for himself and rally them to the work God was wanting to do in rebuilding And I want us to notice here that another aspect of why Nehemiah didn't tell anyone yet was because he was being sensitive to the timing of the Lord and the exact way the Lord was wanting him to go about all this and with how he would finally say something to the people. Even here, now in Jerusalem, now having surveyed the situation for himself, I strongly believe he was prayerfully waiting for the Lord to make his timing clear. Knowing that in order for the people to be stirred to do something about the ruins that had been their normal living conditions for 92 years, it was going to take a move, a work of the hand of God in the lives of the people of Jerusalem for that to happen. But I think on just a practical note here too, a practical point of application from Nehemiah's example, you know, there's great value in surveying and praying and having clear direction from the Lord before speaking to others like Nehemiah did. It it was the surveying of the city the walls, the gates, the ruins that solidified Nehemiah's understanding of how bad things really were and what needed to be done so he could then rally and unify and call the people to build. But, but I want us to preview verse 17 to consider one final thing before we come to a close. And this goes along with that first aspect of stirring that God stirred Nehemiah to see. Look at verse 17. It says, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. It's important that we see here that Nehemiah didn't just see the problem, that he also saw the potential. He saw the potential. This is huge, isn't it? 
You know, too many only see the problem but never see the potential. You know, we have a wide range of personalities, a wide range of how people handle things, right? There's some who just only ever see the problem, the pessimist, the critic, the cynic. There's just a problem. There's problem, problem, problem. And when they speak into something, they just want to speak about the problem. There's other people where it's like, they want to just chew away the problem and let's just look at the bright side. But they're not facing the facts of what's going on. Like, let's just be really, let's just be really positive here. Let's see the potential. But what if we saw the problem, but then we saw the potential too? We need those people. We need to be those people. Because when we only see the problem, what hope are we giving people? If Nehemiah came, he's just like, you guys blew it. The distress and reproach is all your fault. You could have done something, but you didn't. Maybe you can rebuild. (laughs) And people are just like, okay, it's something, like the next thing he says, something's about to get better. No, he's like, look, there's a problem. For sure there's a problem, but God can do something. The distress and reproach can be taken away. The thing that's broken can be rebuilt. Come, let's rebuild. Nehemiah saw both the problem, but also the potential. But, I, but it just, it made me think about, isn't that how the Lord is with us? Jesus sees the problems better than we ever can. He sees every bit of every single thing in our lives that isn't where it should be or could be. He sees simple, simple behavior and character and thoughts and words, all of it, all of us. Every bit of us is naked and bare before the eyes of the Lord. There's nothing hidden from his sight. And he sees this with all of humanity, with every single person. We don't even want to see all that's going on with us. Lord, I don't even want to, I don't even want to have to think about all the stuff in my own life, let alone the 8 billion other people in this world. He sees every bit of it. All the time, it's always before him. But even seeing all of our sin, all of our weakness, all of our brokenness, he didn't distance himself from us. But he saw all of that, and in his love and his grace, he drew near. We think about Nehemiah, the 800 plus miles. Wow, that's commitment. How about stepping out of heaven, out of perfection, out of the worship, the constant, continual worship of angels into our world? With all the sin, all the brokenness, all the violence, all the wickedness, all the evil, continually, the distance that God met us in, the commitment that he made to us, 
stepping into the world, into our brokenness in the form of a man, the man Christ Jesus, so that he could do something about all the things he sees that we can't fix on our own. Stepping into our mess so that he could save us. And like Nehemiah, but just on an infinitely greater scale, Jesus not only sees the problems that exist in our lives personally, in humanity collectively, the way things are that aren't where they should be or could be, he also sees the potential, what he can do in us and through us and around us. And we praise God for that. Praise God that he sees us. And after seeing us and knowing everything about us, he still wants us, wants to do a work in us and through us. Praise God that his vision is clear and that he has a plan so that we not only see clearly but also can step out into those things that he has for us. He wants us to gain his vision, gain his plan. But the first area he's wanting to work in is us. It's our hearts. He sees those things in us that don't belong. The idols maybe that we've allowed into our lives. The pride or unforgiveness or bitterness or or, or hatred that's corrupting us. The lust that maybe we've given ourselves over to. The hypocrisy that's taking place. Whatever it is, he sees all of it, even if we're turning a blind eye to it. And again, he not only sees the problem that exists, he also sees the potential of what he can do and bring about. Victory over sin and temptation. Dethroning and throwing out the idols a work of humility and forgiveness and a release of of bitterness or hatred, purity in our minds and our eyes and our actions, holiness instead of of hypocrisy, healing of wounds and scars mentally and emotionally and relationally and spiritually, strength where there's only been weakness, hope where there's only been brokenness and hurt, encouragement where there's only been discouragement and depression, contentment where there's only been restlessness and discontentment, peace where there's only been anxiety and fear. What our God sees, he's able to do something about. And he's not only able, he's desiring to work. I I pray in these days that God would stir us to see, that he'd show us what he's seeing. I don't know how many times throughout my adult life that I prayed this sort of prayer, God, help me to see people the way that you do. Because isn't it just easy to see people the way we do? Oh man, that's not helpful. God, I need your eyes. I need your perspective. I need insight into my own life. To, to see the things that have become blind spots for me, the things that I've ignored, the, th- the, the compromise or the complacency or the indifference or the apathy. God, I need, I need you to help me to see it. 
He show us what he's seeing, that in faith we would step into those things he shows us and burdens us for, not distancing ourselves from the gap, the damage, the brokenness that exists, but stepping into those things as he makes it clear. And guys, I believe he'll do it. I believe he'll do it. I don't think this is a thing where it's like we're asking for something that God doesn't really want to do. No, I want you to stay blind. He's like, no, I want you to see. I want you to have eyes to see. I want to do something. But I think he wants us to ask him to move and to stir us in these sorts of ways, just as he did Nehemiah. We'll continue this in our account next week. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. In closing, I'm going to ask us this morning, because maybe even as I'm teaching, there's stuff that God's bringing to your mind. And it's stuff that you'd rather just, like, not have to think about. Could be with you, could be with somebody else, could be a relationship. It could be something, there's a brokenness in a relationship that you've been ignoring, and God's like, stop ignoring it. I want you to see it. I want you to really gain my heart for it. Maybe you've been holding on to unforgiveness and God's like, I want you to really see what that unforgiveness is doing in your life. You are the prisoner. Unforgiveness isn't doing anything to the person that you're not forgiving. We're the ones trapped when we don't forgive. We just, we're there. It poisons us. Bitterness is a root that springs up and defiles many. If you've ever been around a bitter person, man, it defiles many. Oh, man, like when I hang out with that person, it's just, oh. it affects you. You're like, dang, it's bit, like they're bitter. It's hard. God, help us to see those things. Maybe we had a hard time loving somebody and we've just made excuses for it. We just stopped. And God's like, I want you to see that you really don't love that person with my love. Maybe there's things where God's been stirring you for something and you've just been putting it out of mind because you're just like, you're thinking about the reality of what's that actually going to mean for you if you step out into it. And God's like, I want you to really see what I'm wanting to do. Instead of thinking about the sacrifice that's going to mean for me, what if we focused on the ways that that might bring God glory? Is God stirring us to see? See things the way they really are in our lives, the lives of others, situations, places, our family, our friends, our workplaces, the culture of our day, the world around us. That we wouldn't just be content with hearing about or knowing about brokenness that exists, weakness, vulnerability, damage that, that's happening, but to see it for ourselves and be willing to step into those things as we seek the Lord so God can reveal what part he might have us to play in seeing things change. You know, maybe we've lost hope or grown discouraged because of what we've seen. Wondering how things can ever be different than how they are now. Remember that our God not only sees the problems, He also sees the potential and He's able to do something about it. 
maybe for some, he's just wanting to revive hope in us today. We've become hopeless. Wherever we're at, God has something for us. He wants to do something in our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the challenge that we've considered this morning. God, I don't profess to have perfect vision, to see all the things in my own life or things that are going on around me, but Lord, I want to see. I want to see clearly, Lord. We want to see. God, open our eyes. God, give us your eyes to see what you see in us. Lord, the areas that need to change, but Lord, also the potential of what you can do, what you want to do. God, help us to to not look at others cynically, Lord, where we just think, oh man, nothing's gonna change. I've seen this pattern. I've seen this thing happening. But Lord, would we also see the potential of what you can do, what you desire to do in people's lives. And so God, this morning, stir us to see. Lord, I don't even know what that thing might be for each and every one of us, but Lord, you do. And Lord, with whatever you show us, Lord, help us to bring those things to you in prayer, to lay those things out at your feet. God, if confession and repentance is needed, then Lord, would we do that? God, if encouragement and comfort is needed, then Lord, bring that. Lord, if hope is needing to be renewed and revived this morning, Lord, do it. But God, help us not to distance ourselves from, Lord, what you show us, but Lord, help us to step into those things by the leading of your Spirit. God, that you would bring change. Lord, you'd bring hope. Lord, you'd bring healing. God, you'd rebuild, Lord, in our own lives. You'd rebuild in our families. Lord, you rebuild our witness. Lord, you rebuild, Lord, relationships. God, you'd build into us a greater confidence and trust in you. And Lord, maybe this morning there's just even somebody here where they don't even first have a relationship with you at all. Maybe they know about you. Maybe they've been a church-going person in the past, but they've never actually surrendered their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They've never, they've never really laid down their life at your feet and just said, Jesus, save me, forgive me. And if that's anybody in here this morning and you need to make that decision for Jesus Christ, you can make it now. I'd love to pray for you. If you'd raise your hand and just say, that's me. Would you pray for me this morning? I want to make that decision. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want the hope of Jesus in my life. That's anybody at all this morning. Well, Lord, thank you that you see us. 
Lord, that you didn't distance yourself from us, but that, Lord, you drew near. And, Lord, you're still near. God, walk with us through these things, Lord. The hard work of really seeing, of, of bringing things to you, Lord. Lord, help us. Give us grace. And Lord God, as we respond now to your word and songs of praise, Lord, help us to see how great you are. Lord, how worthy you are of our praise. Lord, help us to see your goodness and your power and your presence. And God, would we enter in boldly to your throne room this morning as we sing these songs. And Father, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.